0: John chapter 15. Let's read together the first 11 verses. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch that, in, that is in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean, because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit From apart from me. You can do nothing. Verse 6, If anyone does not abide in Me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. By this My Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be My disciples. As the Father has loved Me, so I loved you, abide in My love. If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that My joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let me pray for us as we dive in together to God's Word. God, I thank You that I don't stand up here on a very important day, Resurrection Sunday, without a witness, without a revelation. Lord, I stand here boldly because You have given us the revelation in the Word of God. So Father, I realize that the souls represented by the ears that will hear Lord, You know exactly where they are. Lord, You know exactly what their state is. Even if they don't, You do. God, I pray that Your Word this morning will bring faith where there might not be faith. Lord, I pray that where there is faith, You would give it, increase it. Lord, I pray this morning that You will do what it is You want to do, but let Your Word be heard, O God, and let Your Spirit bring life. That's our only hope. We ask all these things to You, Father, through Christ, Your Son, that You would apply them now by Your Spirit in our midst. Amen. Well, we're going to look at John chapter 15. Here's a setup for you. For years... I struggled with the idea of the resurrection. I did not struggle with the idea of whether it was possible or not, because I think that's heavily tied to whether you believe that Jesus is truly God. And I've never struggled with that. I always believed He was truly God, so it always made sense to me that surely He could rise from the dead if He's he's God. Uh, By the way, I'm not saying that there are... Not those that do struggle with the idea of whether the resurrection really happened, I think that's a real struggle, and I think it's a reasonable struggle for some, but it wasn't my struggle. Instead, to be honest, um, I struggle with the idea of why did it matter. Um, I now realize that that was a sign of major holes in my biblical worldview. Major holes. Uh, but nonetheless, it was a real struggle. To be honest with you. The reason that I struggled was that I understood that the cross of Christ, on the cross of Christ, were my sins. And that by it, my sins were taken care of. I got that. But I didn't understand why the New Testament pervasively made such a big deal of the resurrection and tied it to salvation. If my sins are taken care of on the cross of Christ then why does the resurrection matter that much? No, don't get me wrong. I like the idea. I really like the idea of Jesus rising from the dead. That's a great ending. I mean, whoo, he's up. Um, and also, hey, it's great that you know I can talk to him now and he's going to be in heaven and all that. But I, I couldn't figure out why it played an essential component. Uh, it had an essential nature to salvation. This is my prayer this morning. I've been praying this this week. If you're here, God, by His grace, would help you understand the essential nature of the resurrection to your salvation. So if there's a takeaway this morning, there's a, one, way to, uh, one thing I want you to walk out with, let me front it, and that is this. The resurrection is an all or nothing deal. The resurrection is an all or nothing deal. That is, I pray you will see why someone must either esteem the resurrection as all or nothing or they misunderstand it. You either look at it and say it means everything, or you look at it and say it really means nothing, or you simply misunderstand it. Given that, you might find it curious that we're in John 15 and the resurrection is not mentioned there. I'm hoping by the time we're finished you'll see the connection. Uh, Keep in mind that John 13-17 through uh, is the final discourse. It's going to be spoken just hours before Jesus is going to be arrested. Not even a day before He'll be crucified and less than three days before He is resurrected. So the words that we just read together in John 15 are less than three days before the resurrection. So, one of the things I want to make sure you see this morning, even more intentional than normal, I want you to see the conclusions we're going to draw together come straight from the text. These are not my conclusions. I'm not making these up. So, we're going to walk together. I'm going to walk you through seven points. I hope you see come right out of the text. We're going to observe them, we're going to interpret them, and then we're going to imply them. So, seven points. First, I hope you see... There are true and false branches. There are true and false branches. We see that explicitly in verse 2, and I have verse 2 up there for you. There are two types of branches described. Verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That represents false branches. Every tree, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. It's false branches. On the other hand, every tree that does bear fruit, he prunes. That represents true branches. So in the last hours, prior to Jesus' crucifixion, he thought... I mean, think of all the things he could have talked to disciples about. He thought it necessary to make sure they understood that there would be false branches and true branches. That is point one. Point two. You're like, man, at this point, we will be diving into Easter lunch very quickly. It'll slow down, don't you worry. <laughs> All right, um, second, uh, second point. False branches do not abide in Jesus and do not bear fruit. That's actually the very definition of a false branch. Remember, in verse 2, it said that the ones that are false branches do not bear fruit, and He takes them away. And then in verse 6, we are told, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away. So false branches do not bear fruit and do not abide in Jesus. This is just walking straight through the text together. Third point. Genuine branches do abide in Jesus and do bear fruit. Back in verse 2, That was the definition of a true branch. Every branch that does bear fruit. That's the genuine. That's the ones He prunes. And in verses 5 and 8, He goes on and says, Whoever abides in Me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. In verse 8, by this My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you got... False branches, genuine branches. False branches do not bear fruit, do not abide in Jesus. Genuine branches do bear fruit, and they do abide in Jesus. This is straight out of the text. Alright? So there are two branches. And now the Father, who is shown at the very beginning in verse 1, is divine dresser. He takes two distinct actions, whether or not you're a genuine branch or a false branch. Point four. False branches will be destroyed. Verse 2. We're told in verse 2, The Father takes away any branches do not bear fruit. And lest we think that He just goes and puts them in time out for a little while, um, let's look very clearly at how Jesus describes what he, does, what he says. In verse 6, He explicitly describes that the Father throws them away gathers them and tosses them into the fire. <laughs> that lets us know this is, this is not simply time out. He's destroying them. Now, on the other hand, he takes very different action for genuine branches. Verse 2 tells us, every branch that does bear fruit, the Father prunes that it may bear more fruit. So we observe true branches will be pruned. False branches will be destroyed and true branches will be, necessarily will be pruned. That's the action. The Father will take an action for every branch. Either destroy you or prune you. Okay? Those are pretty straightforward ones we got 6 and 7 are not as straightforward. We're going to do a little bit more interpretation to get them, but they're important, so let's go after them. Verses 3 through 5, let's look at these together. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me you can do nothing. Now verse 4 and 5 are pretty straightforward. We, we can understand those pretty easily just by reading them. And we can get this point here, point 6, pretty simply by those. No fruit can be born apart from abiding in Jesus. No fruit. Zero fruit is born apart from abiding in Jesus. Okay, so if there's going to be any fruit, it's going to come from Jesus. So who deserves ultimate praise for any Christian fruit? Jesus. There actually is zero place for praise for a believer for his own fruit because he didn't come up with it anyway. It's all coming from Jesus. That said, I think it helps to understand verse 3. Verse 3 is an odd verse. Look at verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. (laughs) What? Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Now just stop and think about that. What are you saying, Jesus? Already I'm clean. On one sense, you tell me the Father is pruning. That's, that's verse 2. We see that. So on another sense, we see that all fruit comes from Christ and that a genuine branch will bear fruit. So what are you doing in verse 3? Well, it is a little tough, but if you were here for our Maundy Thursday service, you actually have a little bit of a head start on this one, because you remember us looking at John 13. This word, to be clean, is only used one other time in the whole Gospel of John. Jesus would have actually used it only moments prior as He teaches them in chapter 13. Do you remember in chapter 13, remember Jesus is going to wash the disciples' feet. Who does He come to first? He comes to Peter. And what does Peter say to Jesus? You're not going to wash my feet. And and Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, then you'll have no part in me. Right? You Remember, Peter says, well then, brother, (laughs) have my head, wash my whole body. Right? You remember you remember that. And then Jesus says in verse 10 of chapter 13, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Then He adds this in verse 11, and you are clean, but not every one of you. Okay. Jesus, what are you up to? Peter says, look, bathe me. If I can't have any part of you without you washing my feet, bathe me. Jesus says, you don't need to. I've already cleaned you. What do you mean? And then He says, well, not all of you. One of you is going to betray me because he's not clean. What's going on? Well, one of the things that we can see is that Peter doesn't need a bath because Peter has already been perfected by Jesus. That's the point. And the reason that Judas will betray him is because Judas has not been sealed, perfected by Jesus. That's that point. So, cleaning seems to have to do with sealing. So, what's going on? Stay with me, stay with me. Jesus tells him, You need to regularly wash your feet. That's Jesus' way of saying, You cannot get any cleaner than you are if you are mine once I have cleaned you. So if you are in Christ, hear very clearly... There's no prayer you can pray. There's no action you can take or any action you can refrain from or group of actions you can refrain from that will ever make you any more right in the eyes of God. You have been clean once and for all by Jesus. You're as clean as you can get. And then Jesus says, this is odd, He turns to you and says, now go wash your feet regularly. And that's what this is about actually. (laughs) You showing up on a regular basis to church is about saying, I'm already clean, yet I know I still sin. I need to hear the Word. I need to continue to be perfected. I need brothers and sisters. What does Jesus then turn around after He washes their feet? He says, I've washed your feet, now what? You wash one another's feet. I call church the action of us regularly washing each other's feet. I want you to know, not my prettiest tie, but I want you to know the cracks on my feet so you can say, let's get them clean. That is what Jesus is saying. That goes exactly with what we said there in the sixth point. There is no fruit bearing apart from Jesus. All fruit bearing that ever comes from a genuine branch comes because Jesus Christ has already given you the fruit when He saved you. That is point six. Alright. Now, point seven. That's the, that's the most complex part, I think, of the whole thing. So if you're like, man, I'm not real sure I followed there. That's alright. Just look at point six and keep going. You can, you can stay with it. I promise. Point seven. All joy. I wish I would have put that word all in caps. Because we're going to think this is a hallmark greeting card. We use hyperboles in our culture like crazy. We're so dramatic in our speech. This is the worst day ever. How often do we say that before? I mean, the coffee spills and I say some of the dumbest things just right out the gate. I cannot believe that just happened. It's coffee! It's spilled! So what? Clean it up, big boy! Right? My my point is, I don't mean this in hyperbic language. This isn't over speech. All joy and fulfillment of genuine branches is forever tied to Jesus. I hope you'll see that. I'm I'm not making that up. This is right out of the text. In verse uh, 5, Jesus uses big language. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is not speaking in hyperbole hyperbole here. Apart from me, you can do how much? A little bit? You can at least get started. Right? Nothing. Verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Swallow it. If you're abiding in me and my words are in you, you can pray and whatever you pray, I'll give it to you. (laughs) That's a promise. It's a promise in the Word of God. It's not a blanket statement that He'll give you whatever you want. Thank God He doesn't give us everything we want. He says, if you are connected to me and you abide in me, then my will will become your will and you will begin to ask my will and I always do what I want and it will be done. That is what it looks like, he says. "Wow." Verse 10, Jesus goes on to say, if you keep my commandment, you will abide in my love. And just so we know the degree here, he goes on to give us a degree just as... I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Genuine branches keep the commandments of God and the Father and they live in, grow in His love. And His love forever secures and holds them. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Genuine believers will be fulfilled in Jesus and abide in Jesus. Now just listen to these promises that we just read together and I'm going to sum them up. One, believers are helpless without Jesus. Do you see that? Since they can do nothing without Him. Two, Jesus is the only one who provides everything for which believers ask. The love of Jesus secures and grows believers. Jesus is the source of their joy. And this is why we can say something and not use over speech when we say, point seven, all joy and fulfillment of genuine branches is forever tied to Jesus. Straight out of the text. Okay, so let's move to some interpretation. Stay with me, please. What do we take away from these? I think it is really, really important to recognize that there are false branches. I think it's just really, really important. There are false branches. It's right in the text. To deny that reality is to deny the words of Jesus. Unfortunately, some have misunderstood verse 2. They've taken it to think that Jesus is saying a person can lose their salvation. Where do they get that? Well, because in verse 2, Jesus says, every branch that is in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. So they say, wait a second. Paul says that believers, those who are believers are those who are in Christ. So it must mean if you're in Christ, you're a believer. And therefore, there must be believers that can be taken away. Well, that's just wrong. Um, And it's wrong for a couple of reasons. Number one, you're taking a Pauline point out of an epistle and you're trying to put it on Jesus in the middle of a narrative it makes no sense. But it's a lot easier than that. It would, if Jesus says that, He contradicts Himself. He contradicts Himself in the book of John. Let me give you a couple places. John chapter 10. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. Gosh! I give them eternal life, and they will never Perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I appreciated Pastor Charlie's points this morning when he made they will never snatch them out of my hand. John 6 37 All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There's not an option. In Jesus' thinking, for a believer who's in Jesus, a genuine believer that gets cast out, it's not there. We have eternal security. And realize in both those verses, the reason we can be confident, the basis of our confidence, is because Jesus in both of those has, I'm mean, sorry, the Father in both of those has given us life. Okay? If it does not mean that there are those who were once believers and now condemned, then what does it mean? What is a false branch? Let me just ask that question one more time. Make sure you track it. If it does not mean that there there are those who were once believers and now condemned, then what is a false branch? Well, it must mean that there are those who were closely associated with Jesus and His church, but are not, genuine branches are not genuine believers we see this all across the gospel of John Jesus is intent on showing this John is intent on letting us see this in the words of Jesus in chapter 6 in particular all the way down to you heard the very words of Jesus in John 13 Judas you'll betray me he knew it this is A major part. There are those who are close to Jesus but are not genuine branches. This leads us to four summary claims. Let's walk through them. Number one, in Christianity, there has been and always will be those who attach themselves to the faith who are not genuine believers. Swallow it. In Christianity, there always has been. Jesus is speaking this the night before He's crucified. He knew it would always be part of it. There always has been, always will be those who attach themselves to the faith who are not genuine believers. Please swallow that. First, or Second point. The difference between genuine believers and false believers is seen in fruit bearing. That's how you know the difference. Fruit bearing. Third claim. Fruit bearing cannot be breed pride as rightly understood all fruit comes from Christ himself so yeah genuine believers you'll know it because it's fruit bearing but you won't see pride because they realize it's not me for genuine believers derive joy and fulfillment from Jesus or take away Jesus and you take away life from genuine believers four summary claims so let's apply these truths together There is no such thing as a Christian who is not bearing some fruit. Let it fall. Sure, some Christians bear more fruit than others, but every Christian will bear some fruit. Just as there is no category for a fruitless Christian, there is also no category for a puffed up Christian. It doesn't make any sense. According to this passage, all the fruits coming from Christ. Therefore, a church will be characterized by those who are fruit-bearing and marked by humility and grace. Why am I driving all this home? I just want to get you right to the heart of my heart on this message. I believe with everything in me that in our communities surrounding communities, there is a false religion that I believe has more followers than any other false religion in our immediate context. I'm not speaking of secularism. I'm not speaking of Mormonism. I'm not speaking of Islam or Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm speaking of a religion you might call decisionalism. Decisionalism According to John 15, is not Christianity, though it claims the name. The main tenet of decisionalism is this. In order to be saved from the dangers of hell, a person needs to make a decision to accept Christ as Lord. Sorry, needs to make a decision to accept Christ as Savior at some point in his life. And whether or not he ever Appropriates Christ as Lord at any point in the future is irrelevant. Just make a decision at some point in your life to call Christ as Lord and you are saved. According to decisionalism, there does not exist such... Sorry, according to decisionalism, there does exist such a thing as a non-fruit-bearing Christian. A direct contradiction of Jesus here in John 15. Those who hold the decisionalism, they call themselves Christians. They'll often use language like this. A person can accept Jesus as Savior, but not yet as Lord. Not only does such a statement stand in complete contrast to John 15, it has no support whatsoever in the New Testament. Hear that. This breaks my heart. It burdens my soul. There are thousands right around us right now who believe in this false religion and it is going to give them an air-conditioned ride to hell. They prayed a prayer at some point in their life. They walked an aisle at some point in their life, often as a child, and they are convinced that they are eternally secure. But Jesus says, yeah, they're in me. They're associated with my church, but my Father is going to cut them off. He's going to destroy them. They were never mine. They never abided in me. And consequently, they never bore fruit. For decisionalism, what determines whether or not you're going to heaven comes down to whether or not at some point you prayed a prayer. Please read the New Testament. I beg you. Don't quit listening to preachers who don't teach the New Testament and teach the Bible. Read it. Show me anywhere where you see that. It's not there. The question in the New Testament as to whether you're going to heaven or not comes down to one thing do you belong to Jesus? Has the Spirit of God opened your eyes to your sin and rebellion, causing you to turn to Jesus as your only hope, bringing about new life and a life that now abides in Jesus? I'm telling you, I think many of us, and myself included, we want to ignore this. Why? Because we have friends and family members who adhere to this false religion and we can't venture the thought that they are lost in their sins. What is worse... To venture the thought that they're lost in their sins or that they are lost in their sins. I submit to you the latter is much worse than the former. Some will say, Tim, if you talk like this, you're going to make a lot of people mad. Okay. But is it true? Is what I'm saying true? I believe with all my heart it is. I believe it's right from the words of of Jesus. And I just showed it to you as clear as I could in John 15. I don't know any other way to interpret it. Let me give you a couple more. Luke chapter 6. You tell me how else you take this from Jesus. Please. No good tree bears bad fruit. Huh. Nor, again, does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. I don't know much about the last part, to be quite honest, but it makes sense. Uh, I do know that no good tree bears bad fruit. Look at the fruit, and I'll tell you about the tree. Jesus again, Luke 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? The one who hears and does not do them, is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. Okay, you got a house built, okay. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. I believe around us there are thousands that have built a house on a card that they signed at Vacation Bible School. And I'm telling you, there's coming a day when the wrath of God will knock that house down. And then these words that are haunting of Jesus in Matthew 7. Please, I beg you to tell me how you understand this any differently. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's fruit bearing. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and do mighty works in Your name. Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is even worse. These aren't people who just signed a card. These are people who said they actually followed and did stuff in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, I never knew you. You didn't abide in me. And he doesn't just say, so you're going to have to be in like the ghetto of heaven. He says, you are eternally condemned. I believe this is the right teachings of the Scriptures. I believe it's the teaching of Christ Himself. And I'm telling you, this is becoming a haunting burden of our pastoral team. We do not want to be part at all with holding up this false religion in any way. And we'll take shots and it won't be pretty. But I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we will stand against it with everything God gives us mercy and grace to do. Romans chapter 10, and we're, we're getting to a close, I promise. This will get us to the resurrection, by the way. Um, so if you're wondering how we're getting there, I'm, I'm, I'm trucking I'm getting there. All right. This is Paul, Romans 10 verse nine. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is merely Savior, no. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. My point here this morning is not to cause you to walk away doubting your salvation if you're a genuine believer. But if you're abiding in Christ, that's not going to happen anyway. It's not going to happen. I'm really not that concerned. I would rather have 20 people. I've got a council after this. Sitting down going, Tim, after that I'm just not sure. Well, let's talk. I would rather that than one person walk out of here and go, Yeah, I feel okay about myself. Though, I've got to tell you. I still feel okay. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. There is a way to be saved. How? You confess that He's Lord in that Paul has the concept you abide in Jesus. That's what the word Lord carries with it. You actually believe that He's your life. I think Paul's actually given us even more to work with there though because he says that you must also believe in your hearts and be convinced that God's raised Him from the dead. Interesting. Interesting. In order to be saved. I'm telling you, this is a verse I kept going by, I don't know why. Praise God, I do now. Part of it is that the idea of resurrection is the divine acceptance of the Father, of the Son's sacrifice. When Jesus gets up, a major part of the resurrection is we know at that point it's the Father's way of saying, He paid it all and I've accepted full payment. Praise God, that's huge. There's more to that. I believe it means a believer must believe in the resurrection because without it, there is no life to be had. Let me, let me try to illustrate this. Imagine there are two hills outside of Jerusalem during the Passion Week. There are two groups of people watching the events unfold. So you got two, you got these hills. And you are on standing on the hills, you've got two groups of people. They're watching Friday Friday, they're watching the crucifixion. They're there Saturday. They're there Sunday. They were just watching. One of the groups is made up of genuine believers. The other group is made up of those who are adherents of decis- decisionalism. We can imagine that as, as both of these groups watch Friday unfold, they're both greatly saddened by the events that they see. They both find the cross horrific. They hate that Jesus is having to die for their sins. They hate what's having to transpire there. And they are forever grateful that He would be willing to do that. Oh, that's great. Yet as Saturday comes, I think you begin to see a difference between these two groups. See, as Saturday comes, I think the decisionalists will begin uh, to recover from what's happened. You'll begin to notice an idea of, you know, that was horrible. And we're so thankful that Jesus was willing to do it. But I guess we should go on and live our lives now. You know, our sins are taken care of. Praise God, we'll be in heaven. But let's go on and live our lives. Not so for the genuine believers. For the genuine believers, they'll be standing there on Saturday, speechless and devastated. They'll be scared, confused, and lost. If He is gone, so is our life. He's our everything. What are we going to do? Sunday morning comes, things will look starkly different. See, Sunday morning comes. Jesus ascends out of the grave. And the genuine believers realize it's Jesus, and they are sprinting, running faster than they've ever run to get to Him, to say, He's alive. We have our life back. We have our treasure back. We actually have something to live for. There is still hope. He's alive. And back on the hill, the decisionalists aren't running to Jesus, they're kind of scratching their heads. Jesus motions, y'all, come on. Come on, let's come follow me. And you're going to hear something on the lines of, now wait a second. (laughs) I wasn't in for all that. What do you mean follow you? i got a life to live. And genuine believers are looking back going, what are you talking about? He's here. He is our life. There's no life to live without Him. The idea of believing that Jesus is Lord and not believing that He's risen from the dead was nonsense to Paul. Paul would say to that, what a horrible, horrible idea. If He's in the grave, I've got nothing to live for. He's it. He's it. But He is Lord. Lord. And He has risen from the grave. Therefore, He is our life. And we must go bear the fruit He's already purchased for us. Friends, this places you in one of three categories. It could be that you have never claimed any affiliation with Christ whatsoever. The Bible is clear that you are therefore left to pay the wages of your own sin. And it is eternal hell. But you can place your trust in Jesus. All of your trust in Jesus. Place it in the fact that you believe He's paid the penalty of your sin and on the cross it was paid for and He, raised, he was risen again. He has risen again to offer you new life and hope. I invite you to repent, turn from your sins, and find life today category one category two you may claim Christ but have never truly abided in him if you are honest there really is no evident fruit in your life that Jesus lives if you are honest really does not make matter much for what tomorrow is going to look like for you it really doesn't it's, it's kind of going to be the same just be honest Say whether he's dead or alive. Tomorrow's going to be tomorrow. Hear me. I'm pleading. I've been pleading that you hear me. You're dead in your trespasses. You need to repent. You need to believe in Jesus as He's called you to believe for the very first time. And you need to trust Christ with all of your life. Third, you may be a genuine believer. Maybe you're bearing a little bit of fruit, but you're bearing some. You might be bearing a lot of fruit. I come to you this morning and encourage you. Abide in Jesus. Abide in Him. Rest in His grace, and be encouraged today that you can be that you are reminded on Resurrection Day your life got up. And walked out of the grave. The resurrection is either absolutely everything to you. Or it is nothing to you. But it will not be any other thing. Let me pray for us.